Well, let's take our Bibles and we will begin looking again at the series that we've been doing now on Wednesday nights called Planning Your Life God's Way. Uh, it's from the book here by Dr. Tim Berry, missionary of the Philippines. He's been a great blessing, as I've mentioned to many. He was a great blessing to me. He was my Hebrew instructor, my Greek instructor, but I have forgiven him for those days. And uh, no, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but he was, he was a tremendous teacher. And as far as Greek and Hebrew goes, he was, he was tough. He used to do this in class. He would go to the whiteboard after, after our big exam. And he would, uh, so this is, we had the exam on Friday. We come in on Monday to see what did we get. And he would write all of the grades on the board. And for first, he would, he would make a curve, like this. And then he would go up here, this is the 99, the 98, the 95, he'd go all the way down to the 62, and then he'd turn around with a very satisfied look, he'd turn around, now look at that. That represents a perfect test. See this curve from the 98 all the way down to the 52 evenly spread? That means it was a good test. And those of us who are on the, uh, the bottom end of that curve are like, come on, pal, uh, help us out here a little bit. Uh, but there was one day we got our revenge with Dr. Barry. It wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. But one of these, one of these brainy girls got a 100% on the final exam, which he said he would not give out a 100% uh, a, a unless literally there was nothing wrong. He never would take off for a breath mark. If you don't know what that is, it's, it's part of Greek, a little breath mark. That was never counted wrong if you missed a breath mark. But to get 100%, you had to get all the breath marks. This girl got every breath mark. He came in on Monday morning like a whipped puppy dog. Somebody got 100% on my test. And he wasn't kidding. He was destroyed. But, and he never ever used that test again. That was the last, he, he, dis, he told us, this will be the last, this test will never be seen again. It's broken, it's no good. I have to do it all over, and he did. So the other classes, I sorry, I'm sorry for the other classes that came after us. Uh, they got a different test than what we got. But anyway, besides his brain, which he's definitely smart and so forth, he has been a great blessing to me personally. On a personal level, he's been a friend and a mentor, and as I mentioned when we started the series, uh, he's just a godly example of consistency and faithfulness. And you, you can't always find consistency and faithfulness, uh, and I'm not wanting to put him up on a pedestal, but God certainly used him in my life. All right, enough about that. We'll get into chapter 5, Continued. So, we looked at mastering the fundamentals. Mastering the fundamentals, uh, and I mentioned to you... Uh, the illustration of Stephen Curry hitting his long-range half-court shots and his full-court shots and so forth, but that wasn't what made him great. It was the fundamentals. He would get there half an hour, an hour early and do all these dribbling drills and passing drills, and, and uh, it was the fundamentals that made him great. And the analogy that we're, we're looking at from the book is that there's, there's no great Christian, if you want to call someone a great Christian, okay? There's no great missionary or great Christian who has not mastered the fundamentals. 
All right, there's not just somebody gets the Super Saint Award and it just comes out of nowhere. No, people who walk with God, there is, a, there is an explanation for it. They have mastered, if you will, the fundamentals, the disciplines of the Christian life, the basics, knowing His Word, reading His Word, praying, uh, and just obeying some of the simple, thus saith the Lord statements. Now, in this book, I'm sorry, in this chapter, uh, Mastering the Fundamentals, he picks out 10 uh, topics totally unrelated to one another. And the reason he picks out these 10 is because in making the point, if you want to know God's will, which we do, that's why we're doing planning our life God's way. That's why you're here tonight, I hope, is you want to learn how do I know God's will? How do I hear his voice? His whole point here is <clears throat> if you're going to know what God's will is about uh, certain subjective areas of your life, then you should start with that which is not subjective, but is clearly spelled out. So he just did a little search through the scriptures and tried to grab all the verses that basically say, this is the will of God. And he took those verses and categorized them into 10 sections. We got through the first five. So let's review quickly. Uh, God wills that his will always be done on earth. The verse there, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10. What else? Number two, we saw last week, God wills your creation and your ongoing existence and therefore deserves all glory, honor, and power. And that's Revelation 4.11. <clears throat> thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It is not really your life, it's his life. And the quote we read was, uh, from Dr. Barry last week, your life is not about you, my life is not about me. I exist for him, for his glory, for his honor, to accomplish his purposes as a testimony to his power. Number three, we saw God wills yours and my eternal salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, all right? These are some clear, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> clear statements I'm having technical difficulties. Boy, it spread from Jackie to me uh, tonight. Uh, he has willed certain things that he spells out. And so the point of this chapter is that before you go looking for all the things that aren't necessarily spelled out, start with the things that are. It seems to make sense, right? Uh, start with what God clearly tells us to do and have a heart to hear him and to obey him rather than doing whatever we want to do, and then, hey, God, what's your will for this? All right? Number four was God wills <clears throat> to give you a spiritual gift according to what he planned for you and how he wanted you to serve in the body of Christ. But all these, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, worketh not that one and self... I'm sorry, all these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. So it's his will to give you a gift that will function within the body of Christ. All right, number five. God wills that we conduct ourselves honorably and submissively even in a pagan world. So it says, for so is the will of God, 1 Peter 2 and verse 15. So is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And how? By submitting yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king or unto governors, or it goes on from there. So it's God's will that we have a good testimony in our world, in our community, 
uh, by not being big shots who are too good for uh, rules and so forth. We're not renegades. We're not rebels. We are, we are good citizens. That's what we tr- strive to be, even in a pagan world that where we don't fit and we don't agree with what's going on. Uh, as Romans 12, 18 says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So number five is where we ended last week that <clears throat> we ought to have a good testimony in our relationship with this world. Number six, and again, these are all over the place, all right? <laughs> this message is, this chapter is 10 isolated topics, but the point being, not that I'm trying to preach 10 separate messages in one, the point is, if you're going to look for the minutia, start with what is right there spelled out. So let's look at these. Number six, <clears throat> God wills for men to model his concern for mankind by praying always everywhere for everyone. God wills for men to model his concern for mankind by praying always everywhere for everyone. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, sometimes the word men is used in the broader sense for mankind, both men and women. And certainly, uh, there is, that could be applied here, that it's not just that men pray and ladies don't. Uh, Mankind should pray, both men and women. But I do believe that he is calling out men on purpose because a lot of times men tend to look at this as the ladies' work. I've heard that. A lot of families, depending on how you grew up, a lot of families, it's the mom that brings the kids to church. It's the mom that prays with them uh, before bed. It's the mom that teaches them stories and so forth. And, and there's an absence of male spiritual leadership. And so I, I do believe that the application of this passage, as Brother Barry points out, is that men need to step up and lead in this regard. Not that women shouldn't pray, but that men should lead. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We need praying men. I remember going door to door and uh, we were in North Carolina uh, and this was up in the hills and uh, this was where back in the day, this was moonshine, uh, moonshine territory. And we knocked on one guy's door, and we had a very interesting talk with this fella. And he said, yeah, when I was a kid, we went to church, and the moms took the kids into church, and all the dads sat in the parking lot and talked about the moonshining business. And then when mom came out with the kids, we all went home and our, sold our moonshine. He said, no, what my job was? I was, I, cl- I was little. I climbed up the tree on top of the hill, and I looked for the revenuers. I think that's what they call them, revenuers, something like that. The guys that were coming for him. And, and, uh, and he would look, uh, call out, oh, here they come, pops, uh, quick, hide the still, or whatever. And I thought, well, isn't that sad? Not just that they were doing the moonshine, but to me that mom goes in with the kids and all the dads stay out in the parking lot and talk about, I don't care if you're talking about football. Uh, why aren't you leading your kids? We need men that are praying men. Uh, I think, unfortunately, this world has given uh, prayer a stigma. Prayer is not effeminate, gentlemen, and it's not also uh, demeaning. 
And it does not mean that you've come to the end of your rope and now your life has unraveled because you're praying. And that's how it is in Hollywood. In Hollywood, every movie, it seems like they're praying. It's because nothing else has worked. It's over. And now the poor guy is humbled beyond belief. He's, oh no, he's not going to do it. He's not. Oh, he is. Oh, he's praying. Oh, it's come to that. No, that's not what the Bible would say is normal. It's normal for men to pray as a lifestyle. Pray everywhere. Everywhere. Pray with your kids. It shouldn't just be mom or grandma. Pray with your kids. Pray in the car. Uh, I, uh, I had Emily with me yesterday, and it was bring your daughter to work day. Did you guys get the memo on that? Anybody? Oh, you, okay, well, I, sometimes that happens at our house. My wife is homeschooling the older ones. Emily hasn't made the homeschool cut. She'll get there soon. She's four. So she went to church with me, and I had to run some errands. And so we got in the car a couple of times to run some errands, and she was my buddy, and we got in the car. Every time I got in the car, she's like, Dad, we need to pray. I'd say, oh, you're right, let's pray. One time I had her pray, and then one time I prayed. But every time I got in the car, she said, Dad, we need to pray. And, and I tell you, that's, I love that. I, like, I, hope that. I hope my kids want to pray, and, and to pray everywhere about everything. We can pray about the weather. We can pray about health. We can pray. But specifically, uh, we need to pray, uh, as the, the passage says uh, in 1 Timothy, we need to pray uh, uh, for, for our leaders, for those in authority. Uh, but we need to pray as a lifestyle. And it says here, with holy hands. This is a prerequisite. I will that man pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It's good to be on praying ground. Praying happens more often and more frequently when you are in a, a, a spirit of communion and fellowship with the Lord. A lot of times I don't pray because I'm not where I'm supposed to be spiritually. You know, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You know, one reason we don't pray everywhere all the time is because we are grieving the Holy Spirit with other things that we're doing, and therefore we're not just as ready to break out into prayer when we, when we need to, when we're, when we're prompted. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 5.23 that if we bring our gift to the altar and remember that thy brother has ought against thee, it says, leave thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, then come back and offer thy gift. And I tell you, it does help when your heart is free to be able to, to pray uh, without, uh, just without as much difficulty. But praying men need to pray as a lifestyle with holy hands, without wrath and doubting. These are definitely stumbling blocks to a good, effective prayer time. The effectual fervent prayer, James 5, 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What would happen if an angry man took all of his fury and frustration out in prayer instead of on the kids and the wife and the dog? What would happen if the anxious man who is a nervous wreck, and because he is a nervous wreck, everyone else is a nervous wreck around him, the whole world's on pins and needles. What if that man took those things to the Lord? What difference would that make? 
What would happen if the man who is so distrusting of everyone and everything that he can't hardly set one foot in front of the other, what if that man took all of that to the Lord and put his trust in the Lord? What would that do to his life? And we can go down the list. What about the man who, uh, who just wastes all kinds of time gabbing about this, that, and the other thing, filling the airwaves with just nonsense? What if he spent some of that time praying? The world would be a different place. I believe it. God wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear us pray. He wants men to lead the way. I'm not just saying again that this is a man thing. A lot of women don't have problems praying. It's the men. And so men, let's, let's get involved here. As Dr. Barry says in the book, prayer is not just a woman's job. I want to give you this quote. This is from Dr. Barry. And I, I, I'm reading it because I want you to know he wrote this, not me. So don't get mad. So he says, let me address the men directly here. As a gender, we would have a lot more time for prayer if we set aside some of our childish and even harmful time wasters. One of the biggest time wasters for men is the current gaming binge. Men crave success. Online gaming allows men who are haunted by failure in real life to experience virtual success. It is, in a sense, the ultimate cave-in to passivity. I can live virtually the life that has flopped in reality. Kind of brutal words. I didn't say them. I just read them. But it's true. It is totally true where we, we do, we sometimes just, we check out and we, we look to something else or some alternate reality or, or whatever. And how much time is wasted that could be spent in prayer? All right, that was just the... The sixth one, we got seven, eight, nine, and ten. I got to keep moving. Each one of these would be a whole message in itself, but that's not the point. The point is, let's do the things that God specifically calls out as His will, and we'll be more inclined to do the things that maybe aren't specifically spelled out uh, because we'll be more in tune with Him to hear those things. Number seven. All right, I picked on the men a little bit. This one goes after the ladies, but again, I didn't write it. I'm hiding behind this book over here and this book over here. All right, God wills for women to be modest, appropriate, and reserved, submissive, and to prioritize when given the opportunity, marriage, and children. That's number seven. All right, so this comes from First Peter, sorry, First Timothy chapter 2. Again, these are the I will statements in the Bible. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls, or costly array, but which, come, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women uh, learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over, to man, over the man, but to be in silence. Uh, so he, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Wow. And uh, I was looking at this, like I'm reading this, preparing, I'm saying, Dr. Barry, what are you doing to me? You're giving me all these hot topics all in one sermon. I'm supposed to hit these like, and just move on. Uh, I'd rather like spend some time on this to make sure we do it right. So bear with me. But this is so important. And it is something that our culture does not support today. Uh, the, you know, our, our culture is all mixed up on this. Uh, they, they don't want to talk about genders. Or, well, they do, but, the, the, but gender roles. And I was watching something, a video, uh, some of you probably saw it, where in New York City, they, they want to call babies 
babies until they're four years old. They said they shouldn't have to be bothered with gender until they're old enough they can decide what gender they are at four. So you can decide what gender you are at four. Uh, and the world's all mixed up on this stuff. And you got guys who go out for sports and find out they can't quite get it. And so they say, well, I'll just become a girl. And then I'll, 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 then I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll have a leg up on the competition, you know, and that's happening. These guys are getting uh, operations and then going competing in sports. And we're all mix, mixed up on the genders. Uh, and and it's, it's, by the way, God is not the author of confusion. He's never been, he never will be. He is the author of order and structure. And he is about identity. So many, people, so many people talk about identity and identifying as this and that and the other thing. No, God wants you to identify as his creation and be content in that. But God wants a man to be a man and he wants a woman to be a woman and there's nothing wrong with men being manly and there's nothing wrong with women being feminine and it's very unfortunate today that women who try to be feminine and chaste and, and find their biblical role and, and raise their family and, and honor the Lord, honor their, their husband, their household, they are looked at as uh, those who are selling out the feminine uh, or the female gender. Hey, we just need to do what God created us to do and we're going to be happy. We need to be who God created us to be, and it's going to be great. Uh, you know, when you're in fifth grade or third grade, it's, you know, boys are the best, girls have cooties, and all that kind of thing. The immaturity. You know, we used to say, what was it? Boys go to Mars to get all the candy bars. Girls go to Jupiter to get more stupider, something like that. <laughs> oh, I thought that was so cool in the third grade walk up to a girl and give her that yeah <laughs> you know well it's third grade all right um but you know we need to grow out of these things and recognize there's the men aren't better than the ladies ladies aren't better than men and each has its own distinct role and if you embrace a role you're not you're not embracing that you're less of a person or have less of a function you're just embracing your role and this is how society works you have a pilot and a co-pilot Oh, the pilot's better than the co-pilot. No, <laughs> you need them both. I want them both if I get on a plane. Uh, the general and the colonel. Oh, the general's better. No, 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 you, they're, they're both doing what they are supposed to do. And God has given uh, roles for women. And he, he, he wants them to honor him in this. That they would be adorned in a way that is modest. That is shame-faced. What does shame-faced mean? It means that, they, that there would be, they would blush to think that their demeanor or their dress or anything about them would be provocative to another, would cause someone else to stumble, that, that they would blush. Uh, there, there should be some, some shame, not ashamed of who you are, but, but a, a proper respect for one another, not wanting to defraud one another, sobriety. And the whole thing about broided hair and gold and pearls and costly array, in other words, he's saying, look, this is not what it's about. Who has the most expensive pearls and who has the most costliest array? I remember when I was in third grade going to church and the, the, these two kids that I respected were comparing their brand new uh, sneakers, tennis shoes, whatever you want to call them. And one of them, he said, mine are 120 bucks. And the guy's like, oh, mine are 150 
Oh, I walked away right then because like mine are Goodwill, you know. Uh, <laughs> mine were mine were the blue tag in 99 cents or something like that, and I was glad I had them. Um, but it's you know th- that that's kind of where we go to is who has the best, who has the most, and who we're trying to outdo one another. That's not what God's called us to. That's not what the church is about. It's not a bragamony. Uh, God wants us to be modest. He wants us to be appropriate. He wants the women here to be as that which professeth godliness with good works. And uh, these are things that definitely are countercultural today. This is not the suppression of women. This, I believe, is the unleashing of who and what women are and all of their beauty and all that they're supposed to be. Uh, it is this culture that is, it is ruining womanhood where women feel like if they, if they decide to have a family instead of having a career, then, oh, I was second rate. I couldn't handle the career. Now, if God gives you a career, great. But don't think that a family is second to that. You know, uh, women can do some things men can't do. Uh, women are amazing and, and have such strength that God gives them. Uh, but they have, they have their role, men have their role. And, and it goes on here and, and, and talks about the difference. But before we get to that, let me talk about the modesty issue. Uh, you know, th- this issue of modesty, modest apparel, is the context of, of just being modest about life, not gaudy, not trying to bring attention to, to each other. Um, you, you know, if you talk about modesty these days, you immediately get labeled a legalist. Oh, you're talking about modesty, what we can wear and what we can't wear. And uh, you hate women. You're telling women what to wear. No, I think it is every Christian woman's, it should be every Christian woman's desire to dress in a way that is appropriate, God-honoring, sharp, decent, but it's not a stumbling block to another brother in Christ. It's interesting how we fight about this. We have fought in Christian circles about what you wear and what you don't wear. Hemline, neckline, how long, how short, how tight. And so many times we're trying to get so close to what the world is. And we need to forget about the world and just try to honor God. Uh, But so much of it has to do with the styles. Uh, Now, I am not going to tell any lady here in this church that they need to go dress like Laura Ingalls Wilder and Little House in the Prairie, okay? But Target will. Uh, put the slide up there, Carl. This is from Target. That is, I snapped this just last week at Target. I'm like, wow. The, the styles come and go, don't they? You know, the, I haven't seen dresses like that since Bible college. And I think Target hired one of my classmates as the... <laughs> fashion design or something. I don't know. I have not seen that in Target in ages. Uh, But anyway, um, I'm not suggesting you go to Target necessarily either, but these things go and come in style, in in, in these little uh, circulations. And when I was a kid, when I was at college, it was not cool to put a part in your hair. And if you had a part in your hair, you were just so out of style. And and, uh, now... Everybody has, all these guys have a part in their hair, the coolest guys and pop musicians and all that. They have a, it's like, it comes and goes and it's in and it's out. And dre- these dresses, I, I, I didn't think I'd see these at Target, that's for sure. Um, but when we chase the styles, we're chasing the wrong thing. My son asked me, he's like, Dad, 
how come you always do your hair the same way? He's like, don't you get, don't you get a little, you know, you want to try something new? I, no, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I get up, I, I comb it, I just make sure it's not going everywhere, and we, and we move on. Uh, uh, you know, there's another reason, though, that I don't try some new style every time a new style comes out. Uh, I want my kids to know that I'm not chasing something or trying to be something or trying to be somebody. I want the church to, to, to not be like, which pastor is going to show up today? Uh, the punk pastor, the pop pastor, the grunge pastor. I mean, like, what's he feeling today? Uh, no, we have an eternal word. We have an eternal God. We have a changeless Savior. And I'm not saying that we need to wear the same black suit every Sunday till Jesus comes. But I'm, I am saying that there should be some continuity and some consistency within Christians that we're just trying to honor God. I'm not saying we're not stylish. I think we should look sharp. And I think Christians can be, can be very stylish. But we don't chase the styles, and, 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 and uh, we're, not, we're, not, um, uh, we're not in this the, way the, same, the same way the world is, where it's all about uh, what's in, what's out, and, and so forth. Uh, but ladies here are, are, are being praised by the, by the Lord for being that which we modest and, and godly, professing godliness with good works. And then it says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Again, culture would say, uh, you hate women. No, no, that's not what the, the, the issue at all. The issue is, what does God say is the role for men or the role for women? And we take it literally and we do what God's will instructs in this regard. And everybody's happier when we are obeying the Lord. So much more can be said about modesty. I would just ask that men and women both would say, Am I attracting attention merely to myself? Am I chasing something? Or am I content with who I am in Christ? Am I, am I reflecting his glory to others? I don't want to be a stumbling block to a brother or sister in Christ. We move on to number eight. God wills that sometimes we suffer for doing right. This is the will of God. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise in the same mind for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin wherefore let him them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator did you see the wording them that suffer according to the will of God that almost sounds like like it's a mistake how could it be God's will for me to suffer? Here's why. God knows what that suffering will mean in your life. He knows what it will mean for his plan, his glory, and for your good and the good of your family. He knows what he's doing, and there's a bigger picture than you and me. Again, last week we talked about it. We are not living egocentric lives where the whole universe revolves around us. If that's the case, then yes, uh, I, I don't want any suffering in my life. It could not be good. But if the world does not just revolve around us, if there's a bigger picture here that we're a part of, then yes, suffering sometimes can have a, a, a much deeper meaning. Brother Barry points out in his book how he was able to talk with Cambodian men and women who were persecuted for their faith, and he said, why didn't you just go back to Buddhism after all that persecution? He said they immediately replied, because only Jesus 
gave us forgiveness for our sins. And they had peace. And they were so happy to finally know we've been forgiven. That they said we'd rather have the suffering than to have the guilt of sin that we cannot get rid of. Tremendous. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to happen, but we trust the Lord, and He has a plan through it. Number nine, God wills that you live a sexually pure life. The Bible says very clearly that this is the will of God. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Again, you're asking, what's God's will about where I work? What's God's will about, uh, you know, uh, this, this decision with do I buy a house in Ipsy or do I buy a house in Ann Arbor or whatever you're doing right now? Do I buy a Ford or a Chevy? Uh, we won't go there. Uh, you're, you're trying to split hairs over all this stuff. And God says, I've got some stuff that is spelled out. Are you doing that? This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. This is the will of God, that we not get involved in sexual sin of any kind. It is the will of God that we control our bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4.4 4 that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Yes, there is there's Hollywood. Yes, Hollywood is glamorizing all sorts of perversion and sin and, and lust. And, and uh, there's, there's, I saw a show. I didn't see the show. I saw the advertisement, the little uh, thumbnail for the show. And I, I know what that's about. It's called Californication. I thought, okay, tell me no more. I know what that's about. Don't need to see that show. Um, you know, well, this is what the world does. This is what the world does. This is who they are. But this is not who you are in Christ. As a Christian, we should know how to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles. Why? Because the Gentiles don't know God. This is God's will that we would live a pure life. So much more can be said on that. But number 10, and we're out of time. God wills that you live a thankful life. God wills that you live a thankful life. Some statements that are not, that don't, that don't beat around the bush. And uh, we'll start with Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Ceasing. In everything give thanks. Here's the will of God statement. For this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. What do I do about this, Pastor? What do I do about that? Well, there's a lot of things we can talk about, but are you doing the things that are spelled out? Are you thankful? Matthew Henry, the commentator, you've probably heard of him. He was walking home one night from church and he got robbed by four guys. They took his money, took whatever they wanted, and uh, beat him up a little bit. And he wrote in his journal that night, he said, I'm so thankful to God after all of my years of walking on foot. This is the first time I've ever been robbed. 
<laughs> who, who thinks that? Who, who writes that down? He's like, I'm thankful that it hasn't happened yet. This, wow, I'm, I'm looking pretty good. Hey, that's a great, uh, that's a great uh, outlook on life. Everything comes from God and everything has a plan. And it's God's will for us to be thankful. Why are we not thankful? Oftentimes it's because we're not content with our portion in life. We're not content with what we have. I'll just give you this quickly. Ecclesiastes 3.22 Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Then 5.18 Behold, that which I have seen is it is good and comely for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun of all his days of life which God giveth him for it is his portion. This idea of your portion keeps coming up. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Then Ecclesiastes 9, 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Truth is, Solomon did not always live content with his portion, and he had a really big portion. The truth is, if you don't learn to be content, it does not matter the size of your portion. It does not matter. You will not be thankful until you're content with where you are. You say, boy, if I only could make twice what I'm making right now, then I could really be happy and content. No. Maybe you'll be able to make twice what you're making now. That'd be great, but you won't enjoy it unless you're enjoying what you have now and content where you are now. Oh, if I only had a spouse, then I would be content and happy and it would be great. If you're not content single, you will be discontent married. Because discontent is, just follows you. And it is not changed by circumstances and stuff. No, you have to be content with your portion. Solomon proved to us he had a thousand wives. A thousand wives. How do you even know a thousand wives' names? And he was not content. He had all the money in the world. They said that silver was cast aside in Solomon's days as if it was a stone. It was nothing to be accounted of because Solomon had such riches that was... We can't even imagine this. And yet he was not content with his portion. We must be content where we are or you'll never be content where you're going the book this chapter closes with this admonition be a person of the book do you know his word do you want to hear from him do you want to know his will for your life uh, is god a one of those you remember those magic eight balls that you'd shake and you look at it and this little thing would pop up and tell you something remember anybody else remember those things and, uh, you know, you're going to have a great day. Oh, good. Don't, don't anybody jar that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Sometimes people go to God like that. And that's about the only time they go to God. Okay, Lord, I'm stuck. I need to know. What am I supposed to do? Oh, no, not that. Shake it again. You know, uh, that's not who God is. Barry says this, too often we, want, we do not really want God in his will. We just want his help to make decisions or we want him to bail us out of trouble. 
we follow him just closely enough that he will uh, that, 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 that he will let us live our lives in a peaceful pursuit of our own choosing again there are no superstar Christians like Stephen Curry the basketball player or any standout if you will is someone who has learned to master the fundamentals of the Christian life George Mueller he is seen as a Christian standout he is known as a man of prayer but did you know this he read the Bible through over 200 times in his lifetime. And if you read the Bible through every year, and you live to be 80, and you started when you're 8, okay, that's a far cry from 200. Uh, he knew his Bible. Mary Slessor, she was someone that we respect highly. They have her Bible on display. Every page of her Bible is marked with notes and so forth. She was all over that Bible. In other words, these people that we respect who did something for God, they knew God. They followed God. They were doing the fundamentals. What God's word was saying, this is my will, that's where they started. And as far as, is it God's will for me to work at Burger King or work at McDonald's, you're going to have a better chance figuring that out if you're doing the fundamentals and if you are hearing what he is saying. John, uh, sorry, Job 23, 12 Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Only when we are living those things that God has clearly revealed to be his will are we ready to seek further applications of God's word that seem to have more relevance to our immediate circumstances. Let's be people of the book and hear and obey that which he says is God's will.